It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage project. Our theme for today is Ben Gvir, colon, Apocalypse Now, question mark. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein-Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself, discuss a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, explores with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. Ilana, unfortunately, has lost her voice. She won't be able to join us today. So Yossi, it's just you and I. And let's begin. I think we'll figure it out. I don't know, actually. I think on this one, I really wanted Ilana here. I have to tell you, because like you and I, we, she corrects us in she ways. Does. There's she a voice really of, anyway, we'll have to make do. Now, what's the subject? Though we've already been through four elections in the past three years, this coming round in November 1st feels for all of us profoundly different. For many Israelis and for many of Israel's friends abroad, there's a growing fear that the return to power of former Prime Minister Netanyahu could lead to the ruin of something very, very profound. It could be Israel's democracy, it could be its legal system, it could be its moral code. There's something, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of fear about that moment. Now, some of it might be unjustified, but the cause for this fear is because this time Netanyahu, Yossi, you and I believe that this is the essential core of this fear, is that Netanyahu will potentially be completely dependent on the far right to form a government, something which, by the way, Netanyahu never wanted to do or be. He never did that in the past. And even if he could form a far-right government, he chose people from the center when he went with Blue and White and Gantz and rejected a stable far-right coalition together with then right-wing... Um, we, 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 uh, for, mean, we forget this. We forget like this. like ancient history, you know, right. two years Remember, ago. He could have... He yeah. had a strong... Yeah. He could have built it with him, and he and he preferred Gantz, and then he didn't want to turn power over to Gantz. But Netanyahu never wanted to. But in this time, it looks like he will only be able to be prime minister, and as a result, he will be completely dependent on this far right. Only two years ago, Netanyahu declared that Itamar Ben-Gvir, when he was against the far right, the most popular leader on the far right with deep roots in the racist Kahanas movement, he said he wasn't fit to be a government minister. Now, though, yesterday, Netanyahu readily affirmed that Ben Vir will be a minister in a Netanyahu-led government. The fears aren't only coming from the left. In warning about the rise of Ben Vir, the editor of the center-right Jerusalem Post, Yaakov Katz, in a really interesting editorial, called the election one of the most fateful in Israel's history and potentially the most dangerous. But what exactly are those warning about a Netanyahu-Ben Gvir government afraid of? That's what we have to talk about, Yossi. Is the threat of Ben Gvir exaggerated? After all, Benvir claims to have left the extremist Kahanist ideas of his youth behind him. And by allowing him to run, the Israeli Supreme Court has effectively exonerated him from the charges of racism. 
because a racist party is illegal to run in the Knesset. So is Ben Gvir, as many of his voters believe, merely presenting a basic hardline or maybe even an extreme hardline security position that remains within the boundaries of mainstream Israeli conversation? Or is it something more sinister at play? And if so, what exactly is it? And finally, if their fears are legitimate, how should Israeli liberals and liberal Jews abroad react to Netanyahu Ben Gvir government? The apocalypse, yes. What so are maybe, we afraid of? What are we afraid so of? Maybe before we get to the apocalypse, I just want to say Mazal Tov to you. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, you could say it, Yossi. Um, I just had my fifth grandchild was born on Shabbat. And wow. this Shabbos is going to be the bris. So, B'Sha'at Tova, and really a love to the whole family. Thank you. For my audience who doesn't know our audience, the job that I am most equipped to do in life is to be a grandfather. Like all the other jobs I'm still working on. I'm developing, I'm here. It's like, I'm, this is what fills my whole being. And uh, so anyway, thank you for that, Justin. Well, <laughs> be, I, I felt before we get to the apocalypse, let's, let's <laughs> yeah, give like, the readers some actually, li- that's right, I have more. I have news. more invested in this now. I already had four grandchildren. Now I have right. a fifth invested in right. this. So look, thank you. You know, Daniil, the question that Israeli voters are, are struggling with, right-wing voters, is, as you mentioned, is Ben Gvir something qualitatively different? Is he beyond the pale? Because, by the way, that's every, all everybody's talking about yeah. is Ben Gvir. Yeah. They're yeah. not talking about Iran. They're not talking about economy. Extraordinary. It's like there is. The voters might be deciding on other issues. There are multiple issues. But Ben Gvir is dominating. And, by the way, that's one of the reasons for his success. He's a media star. Yes. And this is one of Netanyahu's greatest failures because in the last four elections— Everyone was talking about Netanyahu, pro, con. Now it's Ben Gvir. Netanyahu is almost irrelevant. Very interesting. So the question really, I think that for most of his voters, I don't think that most of these young people who are voting for Ben Gvir have suddenly adopted a Kahanist racist ideology. I think they look at him and they see, here's a guy who's going to be the real Netanyahu, what Netanyahu promised to be, Mr. Security. He'll be tougher but certainly well within the norms of Israeli... Uh, but can Israeli I just, on this, I want to refine. He doesn't speak about external security. Right. You know, he wasn't even in the army, not bad of his own choice, but he didn't even have a military career. The army didn't want to draft him. When you're talking about security, it's security vis-a-vis Palestinians in the West Bank and vis-a-vis Palestinian Israeli citizens. That's... Ultimately, look, you know, when his mentor, Mayor Kahana, would talk about the internal threat... Even more than the Palestinians, he meant Israel's Arab citizens. Interesting. And that's where I think that Ben Gvir is the legitimate heir of Kahana. Last week, he casually told an interviewer that what he'd like to do is open up an office, government office, to encourage, not, God forbid, to push people out, but to encourage Arabs to consider emigrating. He didn't make a distinction between Palestinians who live in the territories and Palestinians who are citizens of Israel. Now, Ben Gvir went into law. Ben Gvir is a lawyer by training. He went into law to figure out how to skirt the law for his far-right clients. He became the lawyer for anyone on the far-right who got into trouble with the law. For many ways, for acts of terror. Acts of terror. He became a politician to whitewash Kahanist ideology. And he succeeded brilliantly as a lawyer, and now he's repeating that success as a politician. 
And the fact that here we are a week before the elections and you and I are having this conversation. Who is Ben Gvir? Is he really a legitimate politician or is he actually playing a role and is in fact the Khanis that we knew him to be for years? That in itself is a measure. It's, it's, a, a, measure. it's a measure of his success. See, now, like I personally, in my life, I hate it when somebody's record from their teens is brought up to them. And Ben Veer himself said, that's true. On a Purim, I did dress up as Baruch Goldstein because he was my hero. And now he says, that was a mistake. So I can't stand it where every politician has to say, no, I never said it. You didn't understand. Why can't I be stupid? I was stupid as a teenager. Why can't someone else be stupid? So in theory, the notion that who you were and what you said is who you will always be, I hate that notion. And it's a fundamentally un-Jewish notion. Agreed. So, now, Agreed. But here, let's go to your point, because this is what I want to, because you just presented a critical fact that needs to be unpacked. And you said he's setting up a ministry for the voluntary emigration. Or an of, office. An office yeah. For, yeah. Uh, for Palestinians, for Palestinian immigration. Kahana spoke about forced expulsion, which made him illegal. What's interesting, so, but now, Danielle, why is this? Let's. Uh, I know what's wrong with this, but it, since you raised it, what do you see as wrong with this office? Okay, two points before I answer your question. Quick points. Number one, Kahana began his political career in 1973 running for the Knesset, and I was there. I was a volunteer on his first political campaign. See, by the way, I we've forgiven you. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. But maybe, there are some who haven't. But uh, I'm bringing that up because one of his key platforms in 1973 was voluntary emigration for Arab Israelis. Ben Gvir is taking a page out of early Kahana. So it's actually there. Yeah. It's there. The second point, when you talk about Ben Gvir disassociating himself from Baruch Goldstein, I'm with you. Fine. We shouldn't be penalizing him for something he did as a teenager. But until a couple of years ago, he had a big picture of Baruch Goldstein hanging in his living room. And he took it down only because there was media attention to the photograph and he was losing support in the it's public. It's when he actually, when the first time that Netanyahu was forcing Bennett to run with Ben Gvir in order for him to be able to do that is when he took down the uh, poster. Two years ago. Two years. But let's so, go. Yeah, I'm okay. sorry, Yassi. No, yeah. no. So uh, your question, if I understand, you're asking what is it about setting up an office to encourage voluntary immigration is so problematic. What Ben Gvir is ultimately trying to plant in the minds of Israeli Jews is that they're the real citizens. His poster, his slogan is Mi Balei Habayit. Who are the real homeowners? Owners, homeowners in this country. And what is he saying to the Jews? You're the real citizens. The Arabs are here by our largesse. So then essentially the Supreme Court got it wrong because at the core of this notion is a fundamental distinction since it's between Israeli, Jew, and Palestinian. It's a racial distinction between those, when you say voluntary immigration, it's for whom? It's not for lawbreakers. It's not for someone. It's by virtue of your national identity that by definition, you're not a part. That means at the you're core a of Ben- You're, you're a, a flawed f- citizen. You're a foreigner. You're a foreigner. Exactly. 
that the only indigenous population here are the Jews. In the Jewish state, everybody else might be a tolerated. We're here on sufferance. Here's, Ab- absolutely. And, Look, so, and that yes. then, Supreme Court got wrong. Look, there is no lawyer in the state of Israel that understands how the Supreme Court works more than Ben Gvir. <laughs> I don't know if there's another lawyer in this country who's appeared as so often because he takes serious cases, cases of Jewish terrorism. What Ben Gvir understood about the Supreme Court is that they don't want to ban parties. They're not looking for the opposite. They, the opposite. And so, so as long as he dances. Exactly. You're but careful essence, with okay. the language. So ben Gvir be is careful. So let's be clear, because one of the things that bothers me or that I think is very flawed in the criticism both of Netanyahu and Ben Gvir, and you and I have been very clear about it, is that we're not precise. Mm-hmm. We call them anti-democratic, and then they say, yes, we are democratic. We call them racist, and we say we're never racist, etc. If you want to argue, and we do believe that this is a dangerous move, which has nothing to do with right or left, mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with Iran, it has nothing to do with the defensible borders of Israel, and it even has nothing to do with whether I believe the land of Israel is holy or not. There is a fundamental move and shift away from a core moral principle of Israel. In fact, this so-called innocuous office is not an innocuous idea at all. And what makes it even more insidious is that it creates a distinction between Jews and non-Jews in Israel without people even being aware of it. Oh, what's wrong? Yeah. What's wrong? Don't you want Israel to be a Jew? Of course, because it is. We want Israel to be a Jewish state. Don't you want a Jewish majority? Of course I want a Jewish majority. But it is already a Jewish state, and we have a Jewish majority. And, every, and if we're continuing to do this, we are basically mainstreaming in, yeah. into the core consciousness of Israel that there are the citizens, the indigenous, those who belong, those who this is theirs, and those who are basically perennial refugees who are allowed, you know, it's like in the Jewish tradition, we have this idea of the stranger, the ger. You might be nice to the stranger, but the stranger is what? Still a stranger at the end of the day. Okay. So this, I think, is one serious issue that we have to put on the table, and this is what we're frightened of. I want to put a different one, Yossi. And for me, it's very important because I think a lot of the racist attacks against Ben Gvir have nothing to base themselves on, and we overstate it, and we're not talking about what the problem is. For me, one of the biggest problems with Ben Gvir is the name of his party and what it represents. <laughs> his party is called Otsma Yehudit. Yeah, yeah. And Otsma Yehudit, it's not Jewish power. Otsma is not power. Power is koach. Otsma is might. Jewish might. It's, it's so much, visceral. It's much more, <laughs> it's a visceral, it's a much more grand um, Jewish might. And... I could understand the need for a Jewish Defense League. Again, don't get me wrong. I'm not joining the Kahana Party. But I remember there was a time when you joined mm-hmm. and with your background as a second generation or actually the way you grew up, it's almost you were almost a first generation. <laughs> you didn't grow up as second generation. You're, you, you were living in, no, in My in, father tried to raise me as a vicarious survivor. A survivor, no. So it's like <laughs> that, that under that intensity, when Jews were frightened, mm-hmm. I think the Haganah, that's what Haganah was. We have a Jewish defense league. Like we need to defend the Jewish people when no one was defending us. But what does a party of Jewish might mean at a moment when Israel is one of the most powerful countries in the world, when all of our enemies are almost inconsequential with the exception of Iran, when nobody poses an existential threat? We won the war. We won. 
we are dominating, controlling in Judea and Samaria. So there are intifad, there are attacks from time to time, but none of it is existential. Under Lapid, we now have again targeted a session. We're doing anything we want in the middle of Kazbav Shechem. Like this is where we are. Israel, our victory is beyond any of the great, most wild fantasies of the Jewish people. The idolization of Jewish might at this moment is about, I believe, creating a discourse of power completely immune from any of its moral correctives. That's what it means. When you say, I want Jewish power as distinct from what? What do we have now? Mm -hmm. Oh, now you have Jewish power, but you have Supreme Court. It's somehow being controlled. It's somehow being mitigated. When the rabbis say, Ezu HaGibor, HaKoveshet Yitzro, who is the mighty? The person who controls their impulses, who is wealthy, who is happy with their lot. The rabbis who have a more, who are trying to moderate this sense of, I want more, this gashmut, this physicality of defining a meaningful life. At this moment, to say, I need Jewish power, is about the exercise of control and power devoid of any correctives. It is so easy to manipulate because we feel attacked and we feel frightened. And even though we are so clearly winning against the Palestinian terrorists, but still each time we are frightened. And it's true that in a number of mixed cities and neighborhoods in Israel, because of Netanyahu's neglect, they're not safe. We have allowed our police force to be weak and we build a stronger army and we should be doubling our police force because we have problems inside, not just problems outside. But all of that is there. But to now come and say, I need Jewish might, is to tell Jews in Israel, you're not safe. And the way I'm going to make you safe is I'm going to use Jewish power in a way that's unmitigated without the checks and balance. That discourse, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, we banter around the word fascism or ultranationalism. But it is that embracing of power mm -hmm. as almost an end unto itself in the service of your community, which are the fundamental... They're what accompany this process of ultranationalism. That, mm -hmm. when power is worshipped, not as a means, but as an end, then uh, I get very, very frightened for the future of our country. I think it's an important insight, but I would like to qualify it. And Look, I know something of the psyche of that world. And the relationship to power comes from deep insecurity. There can never be enough power because there is a void in your core. And the void is existential dread. Remember how you used to make fun of me for using the word existential, you know, at every one of our I Engage sessions. That's a legacy from, from that my point. childhood. Now, it's true that an Israeli follower of Kahana has a different mentality, a different worldview than those of us who followed Kahana in Brooklyn of the 1960s and 70s. But what we have in common is this deep fear that whatever power we've secured is temporary. And the truth is that if you look at the history of the state of Israel, from the beginning, there's this tension between vulnerability and power. There's something schizophrenic that's built in to the Israeli experience. 1945, we're at the lowest point in our history. 1948, the founding of the state, suddenly we're at the peak. 
1967 were about to be destroyed again. June 1967 were the masters of the Middle East. Go from June 1967 to October 1973. Suddenly, we're about to be destroyed again. From October 1973, go three years later to, yes, to the Entebbe, almost, yes. to the Entebbe <laughs> rescue. Yeah. Our story is schizophrenic. You can even leave the Holocaust out of it for a moment. But of course, the Holocaust is hovering over this. And so what the Khanist mindset in Israel has in common with the mindset that I grew up in and my friends in Brooklyn grew up with, is we don't trust Jewish power. You know, it's almost, I, your, your framing of this is, it's almost as if this is a diasporic consciousness. Absolutely. And so, and when you bring that diasporic consciousness into power, when you have the power, it's very dangerous. It becomes very, very so dangerous. So here it is. We've I, like you and I could probably go on, but then we'd be depressing our. I don't know, depressing our audience, but we depressing. <laughs> I'd be depressing myself too much. There is something very significant here, and we speak about a cultural war, regardless of who wins the election. And we're going to talk a little promo. Yossi and I, and, and we're going to be having a uh, a special election night podcast in which we're going to talk about the election and we're going to analyze the results. On November 1st. November 1st. When is that? Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday right. evening at 9.30 Israel time, 2.30 New York time, and then the first polls come out at 3 Eastern Standard Time. But we'll be talking some more about this. So this is serious. Regardless of who wins, we're going to have to repair the deep undermining of core moral and democratic principles that have become mainstreamed and why they are in the religious Zionist community. These are 14 seats of people who, as you said, didn't overnight become racist, but these positions have been mainstreamed and we can probably add another 10 seats from the Likud. We, we have a serious no, right. non-political, we have a major educational agenda, regardless of who wins, to deal with. But let's talk uh, for a few moments about, so what does this mean? What does it mean about what we have to do in Israel if the predictions, if Netanyahu, and it's this close, if Netanyahu could form this coalition, what are we going to have to do here in Israel? We have to, first of all, re-examine the ways in which civic education, democratic education, is taught in the high schools. There's a lot of civic education that happens in this country. and But if they and, control the ministry, it's going to be very hard, isn't it? It will be. It will be. But look, you know, Israel is an anarchic country. That's true. <laughs> and and each teacher is uh, is sovereign. There will be a each revolt. Princi each principle is sovereign. There, yes, so there will be a revolt in the educational system if, God forbid, this camp uh, controls the education ministry. The question is, what is it that we're not conveying? What is there about the Israeli ethos? Because democracy is not something that was imposed on us. It was there from the first Zionist Congress. We just observed the 125th anniversary of the first Zionist Congress. It was an extraordinary democratic achievement. And Zionism, pre-state Zionism was democratic, and the state has been democratic all along. What are we not conveying to young people? What are we missing? That, I think, will be the first question, and that's very much of a Hartman Institute question. I know. It's like I see here, you know, we talk a lot. We've been such close friends for so long, and we've been walking with each other and talking and learning from each other. It's, I don't do depressed. I don't do depressed. I try not to do depressed <laughs> because I'm, I'm paying do, attention like, to you. You're like, I don't, <laughs> even, and, but I was, and when I do depressed, I deny it and go on. And I do believe that we're going to have to elevate on a completely different level. Yeah. 
our fight for the marketplace of Israeli society. And one of the things that's happened, which is so beautiful, and I think in many ways Menachem Begin started it, is this country, as you say, is much less centralized. It's not all run by the government. Not only the NGOs, the private sector, we are a private sector country. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm not saying anything about Trump or not Trump because that's not my problem for today. But America didn't fall apart when Trump was elected. And um, people fought. Mm-hmm. And people, whether on issues that they cared about, not everything came out of Washington. It just didn't. And I think part of what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to lay claim, be far more active, far more clear about what we want to do. And we're going to have to look at dramatically upgraded educational, cultural, and public initiatives. Because just take these two points. We're going to have to have a different conversation about Jewish power here in Israel. And we're going to have to have a serious conversation about who's indigenous in a Jewish state. And what does that mean? And what are subtle forms of discrimination? We're we're going to have to unpack it and we're going to have to think about formal, informal education to do that. There's one more element here, Danielle, which is in speaking to Ben Greer voters, we're going to have to deal with people's fears, not legitimize or empower all their fears, but we have to acknowledge that and try to understand what is it that young people in this country are actually afraid of. And They're gonna, afraid of losing their country. And we're going to have to be far more sophisticated in our language. Like You just came out with this Times of Israel article, which was beautiful. Yeah, so you. much of the critiques are just, we're using the wrong words. We're not nuanced enough. We're using attacks that the other side could defend too easily. If this is a cultural war, the arrogance of assuming that we know and that culture is with us and, and enlightenment is with us and we're going to win, we have to rewrite that. Let's shift for the last few minutes to talk about what do you think, if this happens, and you know maybe it won't happen and God willing it won't, but already now it's posing a serious issue. Everybody's talking about it. if Ben Gvir will be a minister, you know, the year of grace that we had and now the few months since Yair Lapid, the year of grace of Bennett and the feeling Israel is can again be a bipartisan issue, which certain benefits that we had, leaving certain progressives aside, things have been okay, but Ben Greer's already changing the conversation. You see, he's a lightning rod. And how do we respond? And what do you think needs to be a response, either for or on the part of Jews who live around the world, for whom a Ben Greer policy is an anathema to them, not to their democratic principles, but also to their Jewish ones? Look, you and I are part of two conversations simultaneously, an Israeli conversation and a diaspora conversation. And what we were just speaking about was an internal Israeli conversation. Now we need to think of a wider Jewish conversation. I'll put it personally. I've really been struggling with what is my voice going to be? What am I going to have to say to American Jews? I'm going on a Hartman lecture tour in November. If Ben Gvir is a government minister, what am I going to say? And I'm struggling with developing two languages on Israel. There's one language with which to address those who would criminalize Israel, who would turn us into a Ben Gvir state and retroactively delegitimize all of Israeli existence. And that's one conversation. The other conversation is an internal Jewish self-reckoning. Who are we and who are we becoming? Is this why we waited 2,000 years to come home? Is this the end point of a 4,000-year story? 
And yes, I don't for a moment minimize the challenges that we're facing, but what has to define us as an ancient people that always placed moral struggles at its core is carrying that tradition into these very difficult wrenching dilemmas that we have. And that's how ultimately Jewish history is going to judge us. Judge it. You know, like we're struggling with this together and we're going to continue in the I Engage seminar about what we do. I really appreciate that you mentioned both issues, both types of conversations. I don't engage at all in the first conversation. I just don't. I'm not there. Uh, it's just not, my conversation is an internal Jewish one. In general, I find that I'm an Israeli in the sense that when somebody wants to, I defend myself, but I don't, I don't try to convince them. I'm not trying to convince like that I'm not yeah, in a no, legitimate state. I've but been I know, part but, of this but you other part, conversation for years. For 40 years. For 40 years. Yeah. And you're part of, I'm not part yeah. of it. I'm part of an internal yeah. Jewish conversation. And my greatest fear and my whole, not my, but a major part of my life's work and this institution's goal is to make sure that the Jewish people don't walk away from each other. And uh, what we're going to have to do is first, we're going to have to be very careful not to engage too much in the anti-delegitimization conversation because it's going to make it seem as if the Zionist camp is whitewashing the Ben Gvir situation. We have to be really, really careful because if we cross that line, we're going to lose overnight oh, a whole generation of absolutely. people. Absolutely. Because like that's, if that's the focus, here it is, we Jews defend ourselves. No, no, we have, to have, the, we have to have those the two, two conversations simultaneously. That's you are there now. And we have to make sure that they're balanced. But for me, the primary conversation, and it's been something that I've been engaging in, but we have to do far more significantly. North American Jews have to feel that they have partners here in Israel. Mm -hmm. that their fears about what we might become and aspirations for who we ought to be are inherently Zionist conversations that they're not only allowed to have, but that's what it means to be a Zionist and to have a living relationship with Israel. And what we need to do is we have to make sure that there is a clear distinction between the government of Israel and the people in the state of Israel. And that doesn't mean this is not, a, this is not an illegitimate government. There was no great steal. This is not a stolen election. The Israeli electoral system is actually quite effective in representing the real will of the people. But the fact that there is a certain percentage, it is so close. It could be, it could be 61 to 57 on both sides. We have to make sure that a voice, a strong Israeli voice is there in which we and world Jewry could reach with each other and say, let's fight for the Israel. We are your partners that a country is not dominated by who won an election. That's true. They won it democratically, fair and square. But that doesn't define or exhaust what Israel is. The ability to do that and to have that conversation is not going to be easy because many people, especially the delegitimizers, are going to shut it down. And sometimes they shape the whole tenor and the content of the conversation. But that's what we're going to have to fight. I'm here. You're here. Millions of Israelis are here. Just as upset as you are, Let's build the coalition. We lost this four years. If we did, I, God willing, we won't. But we're going to fight and we're going to redraw it in another four years. Okay. This force, we, yes. in other words, it's, there is so much, like I use the term, you know, apocalypse now. You know, we don't like Mashiach now and I don't like apocalypse now. I don't believe that redemption is around the corner. We're going to have to fight and we're going to have to be far more effective. Last word, Yossi, before we conclude. Listening to you now, you've helped me reframe an argument which in its original form is defensive and not that useful 
certainly not useful in an internal Jewish conversation, which is don't judge Israel by Ben Gvir just as you're not judging uh, Sweden by a far-right party that's coming in or Italy yeah. by the fact that a far-right prime minister has taken over. But if you take that argument and just shift it a little bit by saying— See, why is no that? One, that that's, that's the argument we don't want to have. No, but you can take that same argument and merge it with your argument, right. which is nobody's talking about the end of Italy. Nobody's talking about the end of America, even if Trump, well, they are talking about it, but, <laughs> but Amer as you pointed out, America survived Trump. We are going to fight for Israel. We're not giving up Israel. This is a major blow, and there's no denying it, and that cannot be whitewashed. But look at what's happening around the world, and the same process the only may be happening is, here, right. and we're going to fight we're, we're not fight. giving up. So we're not claiming. We see what you're trying to say is I'm not claiming. Like when people say, oh, "Okay, so there's a Ben Gvir." No, at, I'm not saying all is well. It's no, quite and the it's opposite. not even that because quite Sweden and Sweden and Italy could have a problem. But you're not asking me to build my Jewish identity on a relationship. Here you're saying yes. Israel is your. It's not just another country. But the point is, is that one election a country does not define. Yes. And if, what Israel will be here, we're going to really have to ask. In many ways both Israelis and Jews around the world to be chalutzin, pioneers again. <laughs> Not in draining the swamps, but if there is a moral swamp, let's get to work. There will be and we're going to have to find it. There will and be. there'll be those who check out, just like there was when Israel yes. was formed. Yes. You know, people left. We, they, we don't like to tell that story. I didn't want it. We left. It wasn't all glamour. There's going to be a new trench. There's going to be new swamps. And um, we're going to be tested. And... Um, Yossi, I, I love being with you. It's like so you, mutual. You are a gift, my friend. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kelman and edited by Gareth Hobbs at Silver Sound NYC. Our production manager is M. Lewis Gordon. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. If you want to know what you think about the show, you can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us at For Heaven's Sake at ShalomHartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week for the special election podcast on November 1st at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>